Chris is the son I never had because the World Health Organization asked me not to reproduce. <laughs> now, what exactly does that say about Chris? I look forward to the announcements in this church just because of not knowing what's going to happen next. It's exciting. Well, look, before we jump into Romans, I want to read you the email that I received yesterday from uh, Stephanie, who is with our team in India. So let me just read this to you quickly. Oh, thank you. I forgot it. My son. Chris, come here for a minute. Just come here for a second. He's, we, need to, we need to just do something. My son. <laughs> Okay, this is from Stephanie, who heads our team, and she is with our team and with our pastor John and and uh, his part of his family, and they are with our with a bunch of people, some from other churches uh, in India. And here is the email that we just received. Hello, friends. We've arrived. We are in Bengaluru, and had a great day today, meeting our national leader, hearing his testimony, and learning about the people. We'll work. Uh, with this week. We got to do a bit of shopping as well. Thank you pr for praying for our teammates from Texas. They made their flights, though had, they had some challenges during travel. A man actually died in my colleague's seat on the plane. This man came out of the restroom, looked at my colleague and said, I need your seat. He, is quick, he was quickly attended to by the airline staff. They performed CPR for 50 minutes. He didn't respond and he passed away. He was an Indian man who was traveling alone. This sobering story really puts things into perspective. We do not know how much time we have. Every day of life is a gift from God. We wonder, had this man had an opportunity to hear about Jesus? The week we get to share the good news, this is a week of life with people who have never heard the name of Jesus. Never heard before the name of Jesus. The group we'll be working with are so low caste that other believers won't have anything to do with them. Our national leader told us that when we go to them, they will feel loved. By God's grace, we hope to see many of these precious people come to know Jesus this week. Our national leader plans for these new believers to be trained so they can reach the villages that surround them. Not only that, he wants to develop a training center to develop leaders from this group who will reach the 30 other unreached groups in this area. So, God willing, as we encourage and minister to these new believers, there will be a great ripple effect resulting in people from many tribes and tongues being reached for Christ. Please pray with us towards this end. Let's make Jesus famous in this region till there's no place left. Stephanie. P.S. Tomorrow we travel by bus to our ministry location and we'll do a bit of sightseeing. The team is in good spirits, and people are feeling well, though in need of good rest. It's encouraging, isn't it? And exciting. Why don't we just take a minute and pray for that, okay? That they will be effective, that they will move in power, that many, many people will become Christians, and that indigenous leaders will be identified and commissioned and raised up to carry on church planting. So let's just take a moment 
quietly to pray ourselves, each one of us, about this team for their safety and their protection, for the power of God through their lives, that this region is going to be impacted and that churches will be planted and left to carry on the work. Amen. All right, we're going to start our series on the book of Romans. It is with serious trepidation that we do this. Have, you, have any of you ever heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones? Any hands that have heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones? He's a, one of the preeminent preachers of the 20th century in England. A brilliant guy, had a large church in London. And he preached the book of Romans did a series on the book of Romans. How long did it last? This is an open book exam. Start shouting out your guesses. How long do you think Martin Lloyd-Jones was in the book of uh, Romans? Somebody says, oh, yes, this is like a, an auction. I, I, want, I have three. I have three. Do I hear four? Do I hear four? Anyone, four? Eight. I hear eight. Do I have nine? Anyone, nine. Do I have nine? Give me nine. I, hear, I have nine. Do I hear ten? Do I hear t anyone? Ten. Ten years. Anyone? Ten. I hear ten. Do I hear eleven? Eleven. He was in the book of Romans for eleven years, people. And we're going to do it in six weeks. I feel like a fool. I feel like a fool standing on the shore of a perfectly flat lake that's two miles across, skipping flat stones, and I just want to get one of them to skip across two miles. I don't, I, I don't know how we're going to do it. And here I am wasting time with you on my anxiety and fears. Wasting precious minutes that in Martin Lloyd-Jones-like would have covered the first two words. <laughs> Let's jump into the book of Romans. Okay, we're going to do an introduction. We're going to do a little background, discuss why this book was written. And then we're going to launch into the theme of chapter one. He is writing this book to the Christians in Rome. Now, this is an interesting problem because how do we know uh, how the Christians even got to Rome? How did Christians come to be living in Rome? Well, we're not sure, but it is likely that they were Roman Jews who became Christians in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost for that great outpouring of Holy Spirit power. And then as Roman Jews, they returned to, the, to, to, to their city of Rome and they planted churches. Well, this would have been the identity of the Roman church. It would have been essentially a Jewish outpost of Jerusalem in the biggest city in the known world, which was Rome. It would have been a little bitty bit of really inconsequential nothing. But in AD 49, the Roman emperor expelled all of the Jews from Rome. Not only... Uh, the Jewish um, religious Jews, but also the Christian Jews were expelled. They're gone from the city. And eventually this expulsion lapsed. But in the meantime, a Roman Gentile church 
became the prominent expression of Christianity, well, the only expression of Christianity in the city because all the Jewish Christians had left. Years later, on returning to Rome, the Jewish Christians find themselves in an inferior position to the Gentile church. They were number one once, now they're a, a real serious number two. They're a minority in their own city. Their faith has been eclipsed by the Gentile uh, Christian church. And this results in disunity, a serious problem between the Christians in Rome. And Paul is addressing this disunity. Now, I find it fascinating that the most uh, profound theological book of the entire Bible, the book of Romans, was written not to be theological, but to address a pastoral problem. Had it not been for this disunity between these two churches, we wouldn't have the book of Romans. Had Paul not been forced to address a serious problem, we would not have the theology that defines our faith. Isn't that interesting? You know, we always picture these, these great theologians sitting in little rooms by themselves thinking up great theology just for the sake of great theology. There's no theology in the Bible that developed that way. All the theology that we call theology today was pastoral in nature. It was trying to solve some kind of human problem. Now, I'm just going to divert for a moment. This is one of the reasons, if you remember back to the God questions we did last week, there were many questions about the apparent problems in the Bible and themes running in different directions. All those theological answers we gave came out of crisis in the Bible, some sort of pastoral issues within the church. The Bible is not a book of systematic theology. The Bible is a pastoral book, the purpose of which is to help people get close to God and stay close to God. So when you read theology, don't read it like it's in some kind of abstract intellectual thing. It's not. It's living and breathing coming out of the problems of real people in real time and place. And the more we understand that, the more we see the heart of God through theology. It's not first about fighting over what is true. It's fighting over what helps people know God and stay close to God. Amen. That's the heart of the Bible. That's the heart of Paul in this situation. Everything he's writing is to solve a human problem. Now the Gentiles, of course, <laughs> why wouldn't they? They favor a faith that devalues the Jewish law and traditions. Like, hey, we're Romans, we're not Jews. What do we care about all those guys in the Old Testament? What do we care about all the, ten the rituals of cleansing and everything else? That's not of concern to us. On the other hand, the Jewish Christians wish to preserve as much of their Jewish heritage as possible. And that also is, is understandable from a human perspective. And now here is this guy God has called to solve the problem. He's a Roman citizen. Hello? He's a Jew. He's a Jewish intellectual. He's the perfect person to address this problem. Somewhere he sort of sits in the middle. He understands both cultures 
perfectly. And now he has a third thing to introduce that isn't either of them. This third thing is Christianity. This third thing is not just a spin on Judaism and it isn't some Gentile thing. This new thing is the truth. And it is going to solve this problem and it's going to solve every human problem that's ever existed. He's the perfect man for the job. He is going to define the difference between Christianity and Judaism. And for that we are eternally grateful because that solution defines who we are and what our faith really is. So Paul wastes no time at all in setting out the foundation of his theology. Look at this paragraph. This paragraph is flat out amazing. Let's read it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the good news from God. The good news he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, regarding his son, regarding his son, critical, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. He's already appealing to the Jewish people in Rome. Who regarding his earthly life it was a descendant of David. And through the Holy Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God. Now he's much more than just a descendant of David. Was appointed the Son of God in power and here's its key proof. By his resurrection from the dead, he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's a whole new concept. Through him we receive grace. And of course, this is the centrality of Paul's life. It is the difference between our faith and every other world religion. Not just Judaism. Every other world religion. The difference between our faith and all these other world religions is captured in one word and that's grace. And that will be the centerpiece of everything that Paul says because it is the quintessential understanding of the Christian faith, grace. We received him through grace. Not works, grace. And apostleship to call all the Gentiles. And what does grace require? Is, is grace one of those things that you just receive it and then you just do whatever Whatever impulse drives you? No, 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 no. That's not grace at all. Grace is not just mercy. Grace is the transforming power of holiness living within you. And this grace leads to obedience that comes from faith for his sake. And you are also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. He's now transcended the cultural backgrounds, the racial backgrounds, he's transcended all of that to say you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's just look at the key positions in this paragraph. I've hit them, but I want to hit them again. He immediately establishes his position. He is a messenger sent from Christ Jesus. Next, he establishes his purpose. His purpose to bring the gospel, the good news. Now, it's, you know, I know you've heard that gospel means good news, but we don't really get how good it is and we don't understand that it's news. 
We're so used to saying it, we don't understand why it's good or why it's news. We're going to look at why it's good and why it's news, and maybe we'll be refreshed in our appreciation and love for what God has done for us. The good news of Christ Jesus. Now he focuses in on the centrality of Jesus, God's own son. And then he looks at the proof, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And this leads us to what? This leads us to the application in our own lives, the lordship of Jesus. All of this, he repeats it again, is the gift of grace through Jesus, which comes by faith, and it is a call to obedience to Jesus. Look, if you wanted one paragraph to define our faith, that paragraph is it. Isn't that amazing? And he starts the book getting right to the heart of the matter. And he goes on to say this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation. Now he's introducing this concept of salvation. Salvation to everyone who believes, again it's salvation by faith. But he's giving the Jewish people their honor, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, because both chronologically and in terms of the revelation of God, he began with the Jewish people. And we are engrafted into their promises. And we share together the same identity as children of God. For in the gospel, in the good news, I wish, you know, I just wish we'd take gospel out and just stick in. For the good news is that righteousness of God is revealed. There is a way to be right with God. There is a way to have right relationship with God. And now it's being revealed. And he hammers it again. Because deep within us, deep within us, there is a pride and a self-will that says my salvation should be my doing. Because every other world religion tells you your salvation is your doing. The rules may be different, but the principle's all the same. Keep the rules well, you got yourself your salvation. We differ in this regard. We cannot save ourselves. We are a people who cannot save themselves. We need a savior. And this is the centrality of Paul's message, particularly in this first chapter of Romans. For in the good news, it's good news that the righteousness of God is revealed because there is no righteousness apart from the righteousness of God. There is no right relationship with God apart from faith. We believe ourselves into righteousness. We don't work ourselves into righteousness. Now look, that ought to take the load off. Because that in itself right there is good news. Now if you've ever struggled on the treadmill of performance Christianity, which I did for 28 years before I became a Christian, performance Christianity, being good enough for God, kept me away from him for 28 years when I sincerely wanted to know him, but I knew I wasn't good enough to know him because I knew myself honestly. And I realized no matter how hard I try, I will never be good enough for a relationship with God. Believe me, when the grace message dawned on me, it wasn't news, it was good news. And it wasn't good news, it was the best news. It was the only news that could save someone like me. 
And I've been doing this for a long time, and it's still good news, and it still surprises me every morning when I consider that someone like God loves and accepts someone like me. Because the longer I spend with him in the great light of his presence, the more that light shines within me and I see the darkness that's still there. And it may seem small to some people, but it's huge to me. And his goodness never stops being a scandal. And it never stops being wonderful. And it never stops being something that literally takes my breath away. I can't understand it. It confounds my ability to understand his goodness. But I accept it by faith. From first to last. Listen, you're going to need this faith. Let me tell you something about getting old. You need it more when you're old than you need it when you first started believing. Because you've lived with yourself a long time and you've discovered you're not as wonderful as your press. We're all projecting an image to everyone around us about how wonderful we are, but behind the mask, we know what we are. And we're not that thrilled and we're not that impressed. And if you really are thrilled and impressed, you're screwed. You should just leave now because there's no hope for you. You're completely deluded. If you really believe your own mask that you're holding up in front of yourself, that photoshopped image of perfection, the Christian you wish you were on the popsicle stick when you come to church and all the other people in church have their popsicle stick up with their little photoshopped masks and our masks are talking to one another and our masks are having fellowship, but behind the mask is the real person. And the real person never has real fellowship because they're not real. The mask is the thing that they've made real. Scary, isn't it? And we call it church. And we call it fellowship. And we wonder why we still feel lonely when we leave the building. It's because the real person never talked to anybody else who's real. My next book's called Out From Behind the Mask. This is a plug. But it's true. See, the good news, the good news is that he died for the person behind the mask. And you know what? He's not in love with the popsicle stick photoshopped image. He's in love with the person behind the mask. People, that's good news. It doesn't get any better than that. And it's by faith because you believe yourself because it's so crazy, it's beyond belief, but you believe yourself into the fact that he loves you just the way you are. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the good news, the goodness of God, the holiness of God was revealed It's a goodness and a holiness that comes to us by faith from the beginning right to the end. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now he's introduced a radical concept here. He's introduced this idea that we need salvation. This is the first time he's introduced this concept of salvation. That we need salvation. We can't save ourselves. But here's the question. See, this this verse By using the word salvation, making it central to his theology, this raises a question. It begs the question, well, salvation from what? And why? What do I need salvation from and why do I need salvation? And this is the first issue that Paul addresses in detail. 
Until we understand why we need a Savior, we cannot understand the good part of the good news. Does that make sense? If we don't know why we need a Savior, then the fact that he saved us is not particularly significant to us. So Paul fills us in on our core human problem. And here's how he starts. The wrath of God. Well, that's positive, isn't it? The wrath of God. This is a really, really unpopular message. When was the last time you heard a message about the wrath of God? Never. Well, here we go. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Now, it's really important that he didn't say against the godlessness and wickedness of some people. Hello? He didn't say, you know, there's, you know, there are people in the world that are really quite disgusting. Thank God we're not like that. We're Christians. We're special. No, 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 no. The wickedness of people. It's a human condition, people. It's a human. It's a problem with humanity. It's your problem and it's my problem. We're in this boat together. Who suppress the truth. What truth? That you need a Savior. That you need a Savior. That the photoshopped image on the popsicle stick is not who you really are. They suppress the truth. You see, the critical problem here is that we won't face the truth. You know, and we did that little meditation after the worship about being a child of God and we invited the spirit of adoption to come and provide conclusive evidence within us that we are his children. Do you remember that moment? That moment is the only thing that makes it possible to face the truth. Nobody wants to face the truth about what's behind the mask. Nobody wants to look at themselves in the light of God and see what they are really like. Only through profound grace do you have the courage and strength to see what's behind the mask. We live in fear of being revealed. We live in fear of being truly known. We only have a glimpse of how dark our hearts are from the inside. And it frightens us to where we have to cover up and make sure nobody knows the real person. Gosh, think about this, you guys. Let's say we had the ability um, to project up on the screen just your thoughts from this morning. Who wants to go first? <laughs> Francisco just volunteered Chris. Now, you two are fighting over who, who gets naked first. Now, seriously, if, if we could just, you know, we had a few hours, we'll do everybody's thoughts just from when you woke up this morning to this moment. 
How many of you really want that on the screen? Absolutely not. There's not one of us. That's just our thoughts convicting us. Suppressing the truth. We suppress the truth by commission when we lie, and we suppress the truth by omission when we fail to tell who we really are. It's our nature to hide. Since the Garden of Eden, our, our, the way we've handled our, our problem is by hiding, covering up. We call it a cover-up. Suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. Do you know why people don't want to come to God? Because coming to God is going to mean revealing who they really are. Because he can see absolutely everything. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. What Paul is trying to say is, it is our nature to suppress the truth, but we can't suppress the truth of God. We can suppress the truth about ourselves and lie to ourselves, but if you will even look at nature, even for a few minutes, you must come to the conclusion that there's something going on here beyond chance. There's too much beauty, there's too much majesty, there's too much order, there's too much design there's too much grandeur. There's too much everything that's beautiful and good. There's too much of it to say it's accidental. We are without excuse. No one can say, I, I'm not at fault for ignoring God in my life because no one presented evidence to me of his existence or his goodness. You can't say that. A fair examination of nature is all anyone needs to reach the conclusion that behind creation stands a powerful and good creator. I'm going to go off on a rabbit trail here because I just want to. We did the God questions for the last six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it was, and one of them dealt with evolution. Here's the problem with evolution. Up until the advent of the electron microscope, which allowed us to look at the actual mechanics of molecular structure, up until that point, we thought that you know chemistry was just a bunch of goo running around with, with things hitting it, and by chance, things could come out of that goo, because it's all just unknowable, mysterious goo. Well, we now have the ability to look at molecular structure at a, at a molecular level, and guess what we found out? It's all a bunch of little machines with gears and cogs. The flagellum of a bacteria has more than 40 parts. There are gears that drive that little, that little flagellum in a circular motion that drives the bacteria forward. You tear it apart. It has all these perfectly made little machine parts. And they have to fit together, get this, in an order. Like putting a, a machine together. Like putting a, a, a car motor together. They have to go together in a certain order. How do you get random chance putting more than 40 parts together in a perfect order that has to be done perfectly? You can't. 
It screams intelligent design. But here's the problem. The people suppressing the truth who will not face it are committed to a theory which takes God out of creation. And so they will not debate this point. There was a non-Christian professor who suggested to his faculty that they ought to debate the issue of intelligent design because it raises good questions. Not only did they refuse to face that, they fired him. This is called suppressing the truth when you won't even entertain a question that might question your assumptions. And they call Christians narrow-minded. That felt good. <laughs> a designer's fingerprints are on everything. So Paul says that because of this fact, God's wrath, which means anger and punishment, is coming against those who attempt to suppress the truth about God. Well, these are strong words. Anger, wrath, punishment. Now, when we think about anger, wrath, and punishment, we think, I mean, if you think Old Testament terms, which is the context for Paul's writing up to this point, you would think, well, of course, God's wrath is calamity, like plagues and diseases and crazy weather and earthquakes. It's, it's, it's just nature fighting back. It's, it's God dropping judgment from heaven in some overwhelmingly powerful way. That's how he would see this calamity. That's how, God, that's how, Paul, that's how Paul's readers up to this point would understand God's wrath because that's the history of the Jewish people. So we're, we live in this terror like, okay, steal yourself any minute now. Sky's going to fall. The wrath of God's going to come. That's what we're expecting. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says God's wrath is coming because you've suppressed the truth. But here's God's wrath. He doesn't bring plagues or calamity. He simply allows them to spiral deeper into their own self-delusion until they are incapable of either perceiving truth or incapable of rational, moral reasoning. He gives them over to sexual perversion and, quote, a depraved mind, unquote. Look at this. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, to face it and keep it, and make the knowledge of God's existence a part of their decision-making process. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. This depraved mind is an extremely interesting concept. Depraved mind there means an unsound mind, a mind that is no longer capable of thinking rationally, a mind that is confused, a mind that cannot handle facts well. A mind is in a state of delusion. A non-functioning, dysfunctional reasoning ability. God's wrath. Now believe me, God's, wrath, God's Old Testament wrath is coming, alright? But not now. No, 
We're in a time of his patience. He's, hold, he, he's withholding that. That's coming, but it's not coming now. This is, why, this is why we take his grace so casually. Because nothing horrendously bad has happened to us. Unless, of course, the consequences of our own mistakes, our own foolishness, our own lack of appreciating truth, our own inability to reason. Now that has caused phenomenal suffering in the world. Do you know that the evolutionary theory was at the heart of Nazism? It was their intellectual justification for the eradication of anyone they wanted to kill. Isn't that interesting? Take God out of the take God out of the out of the equation in creation, and you can pretty much do whatever you want. Moral accountability is gone. God's wrath that we're living with today is that He gave us the freedom to do whatever we choose to do. And we have royally messed up everything. We are so clever. It's, it's just very interesting. You see, humanity's on this interesting cusp. We're incredibly clever to find ways to cheat natural laws and mess with things. But we're not wise enough to anticipate the problems it will cause and take the necessary steps to avoid them. Isn't that interesting? Clever enough, well, I mean, look, like it's so, clever enough to learn to use fertilizer, to amp up and multiply crops, but not wise enough to understand its effects on the topsoil over decades, and what happens to it, now we're addicted to fertilizer. And that's only going to run for so long. And then we've destroyed the system that makes it possible to have food. Or how about this one? When television was invented, it was heralded as the, the, the great step forward in educating children. We could, they actually said, we could put the classics on television, Charles Dickens, William Shakespeare. Really? How's that, how's that turned out? Jerry Springer? Here's the latest, which you should be terrified about. My wife's doing all this research because she's involved in that program of what I wish my parents knew. The effect of your child's smartphone on, on the human reasoning process, what it's doing to the minds of children, their attention span is going like this. They cannot think complex things. It's being destroyed by the overuse of this wonderfully clever invention. And by the time people wake up, a generation will be ruined. And that should be that for the end of it. So God's wrath is basically, I'm giving you over to the illusions that you create and the lies you choose to live in and your suppression of the, tr uh, of the truth. 
because you're going to wake up at some point and realize you need a savior. And the world needs a savior right now more than any other time in human history. Truth is dead. Postmodernism has seen to it that truth is dead. Now truth is fashion. Whatever it is fashionable to believe, that's the truth. On first thought, it doesn't sound like such a bad punishment. After all, they're just being given the consequences of their free choice to ignore God. The problem is, though, that ignoring God leads to an inability. Ignoring God leads to an inability to recognize truth. This leads to further bad choices until the person is truly lost. They're no longer able to find God. They're now in a bondage to falsehood. Not only can they not perceive moral truth, their minds are depraved such that they cannot reason clearly. They become enslaved to powerful emotions which determine their choices and which usually end up leading them into worse and worse circumstances. Facts no longer influence choices. Moral truth becomes irrelevant. They become creatures of their baser instincts. Hedonism becomes their lifestyle and they become addicted to sensory pleasure until nothing is left of their God-designed humanity. And they are truly lost and they cannot save themselves. They need a savior. They cannot save themselves. And this is why the gospel is called good news. Because there is a, there is a, a solution to this. Truth is available to us. But it's a person. Truth comes packaged in a person who is the truth. Jesus. To one extent or another, this is what all of us were becoming before we were found by Jesus. All of us. We were or we are all somewhere on the downward slide of ignoring God in our lives. And there is no room for comparing ourselves to those further down the slide and attempting to comfort ourselves with the fact that there are worse people than me. If you're not living for him, you're living on the downward slide. If you have not found him, you need to. And this is Paul's message. Let's just take a minute and close our eyes. want to give you an opportunity if, if you're here this morning and, and you have not accepted the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ then you're lost you may not feel that lost right now but you're on the downward slope and you're moving away from truth not toward it but you have an opportunity right now. You can turn to him. And you can say, I realize my need of you. And I want to be free. I want to be free of myself. And I want to know the truth. I want to know you. I need you.
If this morning you're ready to accept Jesus, the Son of God, who was killed for your sins and your tendency to suppress the truth, he took the punishment for that. He died, hung on a cross, but he was resurrected. Paul reminds us he was resurrected by the power of God, the power of holiness. And if you accept him as payment for your sins and you're willing to make him the Lord of your life and no longer suppress the truth but live in it, if you're ready to do that, he's ready to receive you right now. And if that's you and, and, and you want that, you just raise your hand right now. If you're here today and this is what you need and this is what you want and you want to accept him right now, just, just raise your hand wherever you are. Thank you, Lord. For the rest of us, let's be honest about ourselves. We're fine with the truth as long as it's convenient. So shall we, shall we make a commitment to him? Show me more truth and I'll obey it. Show me what I need to face in myself and I'll face it. Show me what I need and I'll respond. But more than anything else, your grace is amazing. Your love for me is overwhelming. It's unearned. It's undeserved. But you're so good. And let's go out with a fresh perspective on what we've been saved from and who we've been saved to and the immensity of his love, the ridiculous, lavish, irrational extent of his love and accept it unto yourself as a gift and enjoy him and enjoy his love and see yourself in a new way. Amen. Now, we didn't have a ministry time after the worship, so why don't we do that now? Prayer teams, if you would come and stand at the front. If you're here with any need at all, Maybe this message has tweaked something inside and you want prayer about it or maybe you've got a sickness that you'd like prayer for or a problem in your life that you'd like prayer for but you need to encounter God in it. We invite you to come forward now and we're going to end with prayer. And if uh, that's not you, then please come back next week. It might be better news. <laughs> it won't always be like this. Okay. If you need prayer, come forward. If not, go love somebody. <laughs>